Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 9, The Pilot. I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, and I am joined by Jeff Wise, as always, aviation journalist and expert on this topic, and a pretty funny and cool guy. How's it going, Jeff? Well, thank you, Andy. That's nice to hear. I'm doing great. Um, and right back at you. Um, we are in a really good topic today. We're going to be talking about the pilot. Um, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, the authorities very quickly became convinced that the plane most likely went south into the southern Indian Ocean and that the only way that could really have happened is if one of the pilots basically stole their own plane. And there were two pilots in the cockpit, and one of them seemed much more suspicious than the other. Yeah. So this is the this is the prevailing thought, and this is what people thought then, and people think now. And I should point out that neither you nor I are psychologists, but we are going to talk nonetheless about these pilots and and co-pilot and why they may or may not have been a likely suspect for this. So we have Zahari Ahmed Shah, who uh, is the primary suspect, and he was a very veteran pilot for, for Malaysia Air, right? Yeah, very experienced guy, very well known within the company, very well liked within the company. Um, but he was the he was the main suspect primarily just because he was so experienced. Um, he, you know, as we've talked about, there's a lot of reasons to think that whoever did this had a high level of technical knowledge, was knowledgeable not only about how to fly a plane, but knowledgeable about how air traffic control worked and um, how how the electrical system worked in a way that most, even most captains don't. He had, he, when you say he had a ton of experience, um, like thousands of hours of flying, a long career, he... I, was he trained on other planes also, or was was he just a hobbyist who who just loved flying? So he was such a fan of flying. He just loved flying airplanes to such an extent that he had this um, flight simulator, a uh, rather sophisticated flight simulator set up in his basement where he could go and just um, in his spare time when he wasn't flying real planes, pretend to fly, um, you know, computer uh, simulation planes. And this becomes important. We'll get into it later. We might have to even do a whole yeah. separate episode about that flight simulator. It became, it became a major, major clue, a major piece of evidence to, for people to interpret. And, and we're foreshadowing a little bit, but being a pilot who has a flight simulator in their own house is not unique to Zahari. I mean, no. the pilot, pilots do this. I mean, this is, this is a passionate career where, where people eat, sleep, and breathe flying. So we should point out that this yeah, is Yeah, I mean, I like, wouldn't say it's... It's completely unique to him. It's not completely unique to him. It's it's not super common. I wouldn't say that every commercial pilot has a flight simulator in their basement, but people get... People wind up becoming a commercial pilot because they do love to fly originally. Like, that's why they start... You know, every pilot starts out flying a little plane first before they fly big planes. And so it is a kind of love for the sky that drives people. And for some pilots I know, they... Um, on their weekends, they are glider pilots or they... Um, Les Abend, a 777 pilot who went on CNN with me a lot back in the early days of this mystery. Um, I actually knew Les first because he was the tow pilot at a glider club that I belonged to. Yeah, you're a pilot so, too, Jeff. 
aircraft. You know, that kind of thing is is not uncommon. Yeah, let's remind people that you're a pilot here. So, um, oh, and I'm yeah, a pilot. See, you may not be flying triple yeah. sevens, but you 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 know of what we speak. I got my pilot's license in 2002. Um, I was in my 30s and I had some money came my way and I had some time that came my way. And I was like, this is something I've always wanted to do, but I haven't had the time or the money, so I'm going to do it. So I, I learned to fly little Cessnas um, and, that, and I really enjoyed that. And later I became a glider pilot. Um, and in my job as a writer and as an adventure writer, I would um, get ex- uh, the opportunity to fly all kinds of different airplanes, which is really fun from like Soviet era fighter planes to Zeppelins to gyrocopters, all kinds of fun. So, yeah, I th- a lot of people who are involved in aviation, it's it kind of gets under their skin and they and they're just really are fascinated by many aspects of it. And it's extremely fascinating. And in, in my position at On Milwaukee, while I haven't flown a plane um, I, every time the air show comes to Milwaukee, they send us up in, you know, a World War One fighter plane or a World War Two fighter plane or a stunt plane or a biplane. I, I did unfortunately pass up the opportunity to fly in the Goodyear blimp. I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, <laughs> I've done that. It's, it's all this stuff is super cool. So I mean, I can understand. Well, you're near Oshkosh. Yeah, and Oshkosh is like 45 minutes away, so there's there's every opportunity in the world. So, so our listeners who don't might not know what that is. Oshkosh is the annual EAA Experimental Aircraft Association shindig takes place every year, um, and it's one of the biggest parties in aviation in the world. I think just people come from people fly their little planes from all over the country and land there. And anyway, it's quite a scene. But we're getting a little. I think bit we should. I think topic. we should go to it next year and do a podcast from there. Or do a talk. You know, yeah. I, you can do talks yeah, there yeah, too. For sure. John Travolta shows up sometimes. I mean, it actually happens. Harrison Ford is a big, big. Um, Oshkosh yeah, he needs too. to stop crashing his plane. I think one time he was there with Calista Flockhart that he's that he was. I don't know if he's still married to. But anyway, okay. well, speaking of pilots, we also have the co-pilot, and that's something I wanted to talk right. a little bit about because everybody yep. is like, "Nope, wasn't that guy?" Farik Abdul Hamid. He was 27 years old. He was a very new co-pilot. He had just received his triple seven certification, I think, to be to be a a co-pilot or or pretty recently before he was able to fly by himself as a first officer which is the technical word for what we generally call co-pilot um he's this sort of assistant you know captain um but he had to fly six times with a kind of minders uh, a a check a check pilot who is um there to make sure that he was going to be able to perform the basic functions of his role. Um, and he had just finished his last one. So this was his first flight without this minder on hand. And actually, as I, as we were getting ready for this episode, I was thinking, well, that's kind of an interesting, you know, if you were of a mind to be suspicious of Farik, you might think, well, finally, he's free of the shackles of this babysitter. Maybe he's like, okay, now that I can be a co-pilot by myself, I'm going to steal the whole plane. I, you know, he did one weird thing, and that was, I believe, yeah. in 2011. He brought two women into the co-pilot or into the into the cockpit, smoking, right. you know, hanging out, be, presumably being a cool guy. Um, and they didn't know that at the so time. So post 9-11, this was a very bad thing to yeah. do. You did not want to bring strangers into the cockpit under any circumstances. This was very front of mind for pilots. 
at the time. And so after MH370 disappeared, there was a lot of attention in the media to the story that he had brought fetching young women into the cockpit, presumably, you know, as a way to show off to them out of romantic interest. Um, But that's it. I mean, we nobody's really been able to build on that piece of evidence into. So so why 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 did everyone rule him out? And immediately look at Zahari. Was it just about his his lack of flying experience, and they don't think that someone who is that new would be able to pull off something so sophisticated? I mean, you still have to be able to fly this plane to be certified on it. Like, why aren't, why aren't we talking about this guy? I mean, in a nutshell, yes, that's exactly right. Um, it just he didn't seem like he would have the kind of technical chops to pull off something that was. Very aggressive and very sophisticated, okay. um, but it's not. But it's it's certainly not impossible. Again, I'm not a, a, a forensic psychologist, um, nor am I a police officer. But it, it, I just find it a little strange that within a week they were like, "Nah, it wasn't that guy. It was it was probably probably Sahari." Did that strike you as strange? No, you're right. And I think a lot of people who a lot of people who hew closely to the official um, consensus that the plane went did go south into the Southern Ocean would probably hold him as a more likely culprit than kind of almost any other possible explanation. Like ultimately, for this to be done the way it was, and remember the plane, all of its electronics went dark within seconds of passing the last waypoint in Malaysian airspace. And very, very soon after that, the plane did this 180 degree turn, which which again, this is what we're talking about, aggressive, decisive action. Um, you know, it had the, the perpetrator had to be in the cockpit, so, oh, according okay. to this. So, they, so they, they just think that to do something this this sophisticated, you would have to be a very good pilot and and a, a new first officer. I mean, the main reason they ruled him out yeah. is that he just they didn't think he was good enough to do it. He hasn't received one one-hundredth of scrutiny that Zahari okay, did. Okay, because that's what I want to talk about here, is the, the scrutiny that Zahari received. Right. I have some questions about it, because I remember when this happened. I mean, I was, I was watching Along with the World, and the first photos they showed of this guy, he looked pretty sinister. Mm. And there were like two photos shown of Zahari. And I thought, man, that right. is unfair. Like in his entire life, right. he only has two photos. Like he, he looks he looks like he's up to no good. But, you know, we've all right. taken photos or had photos taken of us that are not like super flattering before. Um, right. And in my research, I saw a lot of photos and some videos and one of them we're going to watch together. Um, where he right. looks like a, a, a super nice guy. Like, do you think that, that, that uh, the media and Malaysia and whomever like seized upon um just some 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 negative looking stuff to paint this guy as as a potential suicide a murder suicide pilot there were two major schools of thought that emerged very quickly about Zahari um and just to give a little context this is a guy who was in his 50s he had a wife. He had um, grown children. Uh, he had, as I say, been a stalwart at Malaysian Airlines for a long time, um, a senior captain. Um, and so 
he was a comfortable ensconced, you know, lived in a, in a fairly well-off suburb, had a nice house. Um, and so he seemed like the very image of respectability, just on the sort of surface level. Um, but if you looked at the data that the that this plane generated, it looked very much like somebody in the cockpit stole it and killed everyone on board, including himself. And so if you know that, when you look at pictures of him and you look at his YouTube page and you look at him on social media, you're looking at the pictures of a mass murderer. Yes. And you see in the shadows, uh, you know, that fall across his face, you see it's something like Rorschach. Now the other where you see you see what you see. Yeah, and I, I think this I think this is a theme that we're coming across again and again, where there's there's evidence that is that can be um, interpreted in various ways. The evidence and it's by itself is ambiguous, but um, you know if you have already reached a conclusion, then then this evidence is going to be read in a certain way. So the other major uh, group of 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 way this people looked at the Zahari evidence is that he was beloved by this community. He was um, spoken of fondly by his wife. Um, his friends said that he would never do anything like this. If you look at his social media, he looks absolutely benign. There's many pictures. There's a picture that was taken of him which we can find and put up, of him looking absolutely relaxed. And he's got a sort of half smile on his face. He looks like someone who's just ultimately at peace with the world. Now, other people will look at this half smile and think, oh, that is a sinister villain's smile as he, you know, sort of considers the evil he's about to do. So it's very hard to put a dispositive spin on any of this because yeah, that's just it. People see what they want to see. The two schools of thought are interesting because there was a lot of talk about him being a creepy Facebook guy, that he was he was posting comments on this Malaysian model. Uh, we looked it up, and I saw one comment, and I, I'm probably going to pronounce it incorrectly. It said, like, chamel or shamel. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what well, that means? It just means pretty. Like, mm-hmm. like, man, I've seen I've seen a lot shadier things on Facebook than someone posting a picture of a fully clothed Facebook model and just saying pretty. He was a fan of a pretty like, girl. That doesn't and make you a mass murderer, suicide guy. I mean, no. Another thing that got a lot of attention was that he was a supporter of the pro democracy movement, and the opposition leader who led this movement was jailed was was you know found guilty and imprisoned like the day that the plane disappeared and and again if you are of a mind to see a terrorist or someone who is trying to cause mayhem because of their political beliefs that would slot in there other people would say you know who wouldn't be a pro democracy activist i mean this guy ultimately did come to power and he's a kind of a moderate democrat not an extremist zahari by the way was not a religious extremist he was a normal kind of muslim in a way that a normal christian is is normal in a in, in a malaysia place like it's a pretty States, mo- Australia, pretty Britain. pretty muslim country um but he 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 was not a to the best of our knowledge he wasn't a fundamentalist he wasn't he didn't have radical tendencies. Um, I've watched his YouTube videos. I mean, he just seems like a guy. Like, he speaks basically perfect English. He's, 
you know, his hobbies include most people in the world who are religious are religious out of it's the custom that they were brought up in. You know, very few people are jihadists. Very few people want to go to um, heaven because they, you know, died fighting. And the the ones that do usually tell people about it. I mean, committing a terrorist act in complete anonymity, that doesn't really help an ideology. Yeah, no, it definitely seems not to really fit together. Um, Another issue psychologically about Zahari is just the whole issue of um, the whole issue of committing suicide in this way. It struck me as a very strange way to commit suicide, to to fly for hours and hours and hours and then um, and then. Yeah, so you Uh, it's. It seems like you're prolonging the like the, the 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 worst part of it, which is if you if you're I think most people who are suicidal and again neither of us are psychologists, but it just seems common sense that if your goal is to die, that's your goal. Your goal is not to 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 prolong the strength of dying, the length of dying. And that's not just an opinion that you came to on your own. You spoke to Catherine uh, Romslard, Romslard, I believe. Uh, she is a forensic psychologist professor at DeSales University. And in an earlier interview you did with her, you asked her these specific questions. And again, you can't, you can't declare someone anything without speaking to them. So the best we have is, is, right. is his history. But she basically said, she agreed with you. She said, most people don't just slowly ponder mur- murder-suicide and spend six hours, you know, thinking about it. It's, if it's not an impulsive decision, at least it's a planned decision. And it's the kind of thing that you do it and get it over with because the act of dying isn't what people, except for some very, very specific kinds of psychotic serial killers, the act of dying isn't why people commit suicide. They don't enjoy that part. They want to. They want to escape from something, and that, right. that does, that's not consistent with someone who would have flown a plane for six hours slowly and then glided it or crashed it into the ocean without so much as a suicide note or um, a motive or or anything. So, a couple of points um, to address this issue of prolonging the the horrible fate. Um, some people propose that well, maybe he turned the plane south. And then took a, a poisonous pill of some kind or killed himself or shot himself oh. and then let the plane fly as a ghost plane into the Southern Ocean. And that does kind of re- that would reconcile the part about prolonging the horrible part. But it doesn't seem like that's what happened. Why? It looks like based on the evidence that we have that somebody was in this plane actively at the control, certainly active at the end and manipulated the controls in a way we'll discuss further in future episodes. But this person didn't just like um, take a cyanide pill and let the plane fly to the south. They they were there the whole way. That So, so the pilot suicide theory really necessitates active piloting for the six hours. Um, and in terms of you know, it's not just that it was long, but it was complicated. The pilot suicide theory imagined that that somebody um, was, remember, pulling circuit breakers, isolating circuits, flying over Air Force bases, you know, being very evasive, flying really quickly, doing these complicated series of turns, um, not just crashing it into the plane. I, after this um, 
after my book about MA370 came out, Amazon asked me to do a Kindle single about German Wings, which mm-hmm. was a suicide that happened about uh, a year later. And basically, a young co-pilot, get back to your theories about Farik, but the, a young co-pilot locked his captain out of the plane and then set the um, autopilot to zero altitude while they were flying towards the Alps. And so the plane descended into the Alps and killed everyone on board. That guy had had a history of mental disease. He had actually been grounded for a while. And investigators found um, a search on his um, iPad where he'd been looking into pilot suicides. And one of the ones he looked at was MH370 because of the speculation about Sahari. So in the handful of cases we do know of where pilots did commit suicide by flying into the ground, um, they all were troubled. They all had real red flags around them. Zahari had no obvious red yeah, flags. Yeah, can I pause and ask you, um, because yeah. you know, I hadn't even really thought about that. So let's say Zahari did all this stuff, pointed the plane south, took his cyanide pill. If he would have taken his hands off the wheel... You know, with with the plane have just kept going and glided down, or could he have just set the autopilot to go and then it would have crashed, or like what would that have looked like? Because the general consensus is in the accepted theory that once it started heading south, it just went in a straight line. That was the supposition at first. It turns out that that's not what happened. Okay. And we're going to have to t- spend an entire right. episode okay. Okay. explaining okay, we'll why. Come back because it's, it. It's, it, it, it's something that has b- received a lot of attention, a lot of discussion. Um, it remains really contentious. To this day, you have people kind of presenting themselves to the media and saying, oh, I think this is what happened. And it doesn't match okay. that. So we do have evidence that bears directly on this issue. And I want to go through it kind of carefully. Okay. Um, but to make a long story short, it was not a ghost flight for the last six okay. hours. Um, But another point I want to make is that, so what he did was complex as well as prolonged. And I was also interested in talking to the psychologist about the complexity part of it. Like, why would you, instead of just, you know, like, like setting the autopilot altitude to zero is like, it's a one step process. You do that, then you sit back and you just wait for the end. You don't have to do anything. so I was. I said to her, "Is there a case? Are there cases? Is it known in the literature that people kill themselves in really complicated ways?" Yeah. And she said, "Usually not, but sometimes." And she cited to me the case of a of a person who was an engineer yeah. who built a suicide contraption involving a chainsaw. And I don't know the details. And I don't particularly no, but we know, want to it know the details. And that's pretty. It did know, work. It's. It's an impressive way to go if that's how you're going to do it, but it's rare. So it's not unknown. It did. It seemed less unusual to her than simply the prolonging part. And that seemed really weird to her. But she said, you know what? People are unknowable at some level. People will do things that you just can't and just explain. Because, you don't know what's going on. Just because nobody has done it before doesn't mean it couldn't have happened for the first time. So, you know, we're not here saying that yeah. this, this, this guy didn't didn't do it. We're just saying that the experts think it's irregular. Um, what the there's also a bunch of anonymous quotes, and I don't like anonymous quotes, and I yeah. bet you don't either. Um, I, when when I ask my writers to write something that's 
that's difficult or controversial, and if someone's not willing to go on the record, it better be it better be a matter of national security because if you're not willing to stand behind your quote, I, ha- I have some some questions about it. Um, an anonymous friend said, an anonymous friend of Zahari said this, and, and I'm, now I'm going to read this. It's a quote. He's okay. one of the finest pilots around, and I'm no medical expert, but with all that was happening in his life, Zahari was probably in no state of mind to be flying. Right. That's a big bomb to drop. So this quote comes from the from the piece that William Langevisha wrote in The Atlantic. Um, and we might talk more about this article and how it came to be. But for now, um, I, I think it's important to unpack this a little bit because Langevisha basically talked to his friends at um, the NTSB, the National Transport Safety Bureau, and they said that the pilot did it. And he, he didn't really ask them, like, why they thought that, but they had, they had come to that conclusion. And so Lang- Langavisha basically was, again, we talked about these two schools of thought. If you have already decided that, that Zahari is guilty, then everything that he does um, somehow uh, implicates him. Um, and the, 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 the fellow that Langavisha quotes, who he quotes anonymously, so we don't know how informed this guy really is, but even this in his own quote, this guy seems to say, there's nothing about Zahari's behavior or character that would lead me to be suspicious, but we know that he did it, so therefore he must have been in no condition to fly. It's absolutely circular reasoning. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. Am I missing something? It's just a way to justify your 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 beliefs beforehand. <laughs> okay. But there are also um, supporting videos that Zahari was a pretty good guy. Uh, in the first two... Well, so he himself... Yeah had a YouTube page yeah. and he was putting up videos that um, he didn't have a huge number of them, but like, it seemed like every time he would do like a, 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 a you know, health, home improvement project or DIY project, he would make a video and he would explain how to do the thing he was doing. And um, so you could look at them if you don't know if Zahari was guilty or not, you might look at them and think, okay, here's a guy who is a sort of handyman tinkering around the house, like generally trying to be helpful, um, not a super self-aggrandizing guy, just kind of quietly helping out. Um, Or you might look at them and see nefarious clues. And so these are real Rorschach tests. So I think it would be fun to look at them together and kind of just, you know, talk about what we're seeing and see, you know, how you could read it one way or the other. Yeah, let's watch this one about specifically about window repair. And we'll comment as we go. And and I want the viewers and the listeners to tell us if they agree with us, because to me, this does not look like a, a guy who's about to kill hundreds of people, including himself. So, so let's uh, let's. But some people, but some people watch them and th- and thought that it did. Okay, so. all right, let's roll the tape, as they say. That's not really tape, but let's roll the YouTube on on Zahari's window repair video and and take it from there. Okay, so we're watching a Zahari video called Window Seal. And so I guess he had a rental apartment or he had a, a, some, some, a friend's apartment. I'm not exactly sure whose apartment this is. But his, uh, there's, there's been a leak and it's caused damage. And so the point of this is to rectify this issue. It's interesting. It's weird hearing his voice for the first time. 
so this is not a guy who's making videos about how, um, you know, demons are <laughs> taking over the media. Uh, this is just the most, like, low-intensity, um, you know, low-psychological stress you can imagine. He's, like, got a very mundane task, and he's going about it in a very methodical... It's, it's kind of peaceful. ...low-emotion way. It's kind of peaceful, right? This... I mean, I think to be concerned with this kind of level of problem, you have to be attuned to your world. You have to be, um, you know, you have to have the emotional space to deal with problems like this. He's not crushed by workload. He's not strung out, sleep deprived hallucinating, hearing demons. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He's like, he's living in a world in which he has relatively small problems and he's dealing with them in a very rational way. So if we're looking at evidence that Zahari was mentally unstable, um, this is not that, in my estimation. Um, however... I think what we should do is maybe fast forward it to a point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because there's there there are there is a breadcrumb here, so I'm just gonna scan forward here. And, and I think this is. is this is why I wanted to look at this clip in particular because what he does is he as as anyone who's ever done a, a home painting job knows you have to kind of put up. Let's pause it right here, real quick. People, some people looked at this and. Rather than seeing a man, a man calmly going about a rather mundane chore, saw evidence that he was trying to send a secret signal uh. in these headlines. And you can quite clearly see the headline. The end is near for Twilight. And there's pictures of the actors it's, from the movie okay. Twilight. And then there's another one that says Bond drops by Afghanistan. Okay. And which is talking about a, um, a politician going to Afghanistan. And some people were like, OK, the end is near. That means he's sending a signal that he's going to kill a Dude, whole bunch of people. This isn't the TV show Lost here. <laughs> well, this I'm just this. But I think it's worth knowing that, that this this is the kind of thing that that has happened in the case of MX370, where, again, it's like you're seeing this evidence that you could read one way or you could read it the All other right. way. Um, I'm going to look and see what other newspapers say. That one looks like it's about a bank. Um, yeah, so maybe it had, maybe he was en enraged about corruption and there's like, it looks like a soda coup or something. Maybe he was like trying to, he's signaling that he's leaving behind a puzzle for the, for, you know, investigators to solve. Um, you know, and, and here are some, some, some headlines in, in Malay. <clears throat> I don't know, Jeff. So, I mean, I think each person can take from it what they want. All right. I took from it as a pretty, <laughs> a pretty mundane video about how to fix a window seal. I also see that myself, but, you know, we can't. Um, it's very hard to, to, to convince people otherwise if that's their mindset. He, there are other videos about Zahari. There's one from his sister. And there's one from his niece, I believe. And the sister one is, 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 is it's, it's quite sweet and, and, and sad. It's impossible that it's him. Uh, we are left suspended mid-air. 
all kinds of speculations. And um, for now, I would consider like I have lost my brother. But to make matters worse, fingers are pointing at him. Uh, and the niece one is also quite sad because it's one of those sort of in-memorial retrospects. And what I found interesting is there are a ton of photos of Zahari that look nothing like this shadowy, you know, bald man that, uh, that are the two photos that I've, I've, I've seen over and over again. Let's watch these. So I think it's I think it's worth noting that the family members and loved ones of everyone on board this plane had tremendous pain to deal with after MH370 disappeared. Um, I think it's a different kind of pain and suffering than just losing a loved one in a plane crash. There's a certain you know quality of not knowing. Yeah that I think must really eat at you. Um, but for Zahari's loved ones, there was this extra element, which is that he was widely described as the murderer of everyone else's loved ones. And so, you know, to lose somebody, but also to have their memory so besmirched, I think is, I mean, frankly, unimaginable to me. But I think it deserves acknowledgement that this guy really is innocent until proven guilty. And when we have so little to go on, I mean, r really, this guy was basically judged a mass murderer based on mathematical deduction. Not just mathematical deduction. The mathematical deduction is what said the plane went here and crashed. The mathematical right. deduction didn't say he did it. it, it <laughs> like, well, it did in the sense that to, to turn her plane around in a couple of seconds, um, I mean, um, um, about a minute before he said goodnight, Malaysia, MH, uh, Malaysia 370, um, you know, then the plane is, is, is going dark and turning around. There wasn't enough time for, for you know, um, hijackers to storm the cockpit or anything like that. So when I say that he, he was, you know, found guilty by just math alone, it was math that um, said that the plane went south and other circumstances indicated that only really he could have well, done it. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, and I'm not just going to add to our conspiracy theory here, but the, the thing is we don't know what was happening on a personal level inside this plane. I mean, for all we know, there was a guy holding him at gunpoint saying, say goodnight, I'm H370, and then, you know, told him to turn the plane. We have no idea. Like, we, don't, we didn't see it, hear any distress calls, but... I mean, okay. there's just, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not saying he didn't do it. Well, I mean, listen, that's what this yeah, podcast I'm not, is about, I'm not right? Saying, it's it's I'm not about kind of or, sifting through the evidence. I'm not saying he did it or he didn't do it, but this is a, you're right. This is a huge accusation to level on someone that the, the best reason that they could call him a murderer is because the plane did a thing. 
I, I just I don't like it. Right. And I don't like that it's based no, on, these, I, on these anonymous quotes and, and flight simulator data, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, there, I, I, saw, I heard very few breadcrumbs that would have led or hints to this. The only thing I, I read was he was having marital, marital problems and he might have had a, an issue with a mistress. Uh, I mean, has that even been corroborated? To my knowledge, it has not been corroborated. Um, all of the, you know, claims about marital discord and so forth are um, sourced to um, anonymous sources and have been refuted by uh, his relatives on the record. So it's fairly weak tea in my estimate. So, I think, no, yeah. I mean, so... so. So we're trusting the criminal justice system of Malaysia. I mean, no offense, Malaysia, but we've already just discussed well, that this the, the, isn't the, the Malaysian world's most, you know, crack police squad here. I can't characterize the quality of Malaysian police, but I will say that the official position of the Malaysian police is that Zahari didn't do it. So when they when the Malaysian authorities put out their report, they said we looked at this guy, nothing is suspicious. There's no reason to think he did it. So from an official perspective, he was not blamed for this. Other people like Langavisha, Langavisha had done a piece about an earlier murder-suicide crash um, involving Egypt Air, where the Egyptian authorities were like, this guy's Egyptian, he's good. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And the Americans were like, this guy, we have him on the cockpit voice recorder, like, saying, um, you know, uh, he's struggling for the controls and he, he, it really looks like he, he fought in the cockpit and, and, and gained control of the plane and, and flew it into the ocean. And, and airlines typically do sort of defend their own. I mean, they, they frequently say like, oh, couldn't have been our guy. I mean that's not that's not a position, and 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 the, the, the unions. I mean, so they tend they tend to to defend uh, the pilot before they go that route. But it, it, people who are suspicious of Zahari anyway um, look at the official conclusion by Malaysian authorities and say, yeah, they're just covering their asses. They're they're just um, you know going to bat for their own. So, and, you know, that does happen, but it's, it's, uh, if we're looking for proof, if we're looking for hard evidence that Sahari was mentally unstable, that he was being pushed to the edge by debt or unhappy marriage, or that he was a jihadist or anything, you're really not going to find any hard evidence. There's one piece of evidence and i'll just yeah, tease it let's here talk i think we should it, spend a whole, a whole episode, episode talking about worth it. but i mean it's, it's something yeah. that 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 people if we don't talk about it they're going to be like oh but what about the flight simulator well we want to talk about it i was the one who broke the story yeah in the, you in did media, that's amazing okay people were looking into zahari's background and hoping to find a smoking gun something that would say okay this guy is the kind of person who would commit mass murder suicide and for my money, they just didn't find it. They didn't find anything that painted this guy as a likely culprit. The one piece of evidence that they found was the flight simulator in his basement and the data that was stored on it. And we're going to save that for a future episode, but I just want to cue people to the idea that this was the one piece of evidence tied directly to Zahari that could be a smoking gun. And it's a, that it's could a topic really definitively that you know an tie awful him to lot about because you were the one who broke the story. 
but we're not going to spoil it because we couldn't do it justice in just a few minutes. There's an awful lot to talk about uh, involving the flight simulator. Given that it's considered to be the smoking gun by some people, I want to devote a full episode to it. Fair. I think this was a this was a pretty straightforward episode, but I would love to know if people have anything that they think is way off on this one. We're getting some really good comments on all the platforms that you can watch or listen to Deep Dive MH370. So you know the platform you're watching. Such as? Yeah, I was going to say, well, you're either watching this on YouTube, you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, you're watching it on Facebook, you're reading about it on, on, on our website, deepdivemh370.com, on the Substack platform. You're getting our emails. You're following us on social media because we're also doing extra content, sometimes in between shows um, and Instagram stories and YouTube shorts. We're everywhere, Jeff. And that's, that's kind of how we're going to have everywhere. to do this because this is a multi-platform thing because people consume content differently and we're, yeah. we're, we're pretty agnostic about how we present this stuff I do think the video is more interesting than the audio but that's just me um, I, 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 the video is also up on the Substack. the n- nice thing about the Substack is it has a very nice commenting feature so if you want to ask questions or pitch in your two cents you might know something about the Zahari case that we've overlooked I don't claim to be encyclopedic um, so love to get other people's two cents and the really neat thing about Substack is that you can support us you can subscribe for free or you can subscribe and 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 get a paid subscription which encourages us you know emotionally and also financially and allows us to sort of buy online ads and stuff like that to get out the word because we do of course as we say every week really feel like it's important this is an important mystery and it's important for people to understand that it's not just a fog of an infinite number of possible theories there's a very narrow range of things that could have happened to this planet. And I think it's important to understand what those are. Yeah. And I hope that by episode nine, people are realizing that we're not saying that we know every single answer, but we're talking about them. What do you want to talk about in episode 10, Jeff? Well, episode 10, I think, is going to be a big one, and I'm pretty excited about it. You know, in in the episodes to date, we've been talking about why the authorities believe that the airplane must have gone into the southern Indian Ocean and how I came to agree with and understand their logic. Um, but as time went by, troubling pieces of information began to accumulate and led me to doubt if there might be another explanation for what happened. Um, and that's that's going to be, I think, a very interesting one, um, potentially controversial, but I'm excited to talk about it. All right. That sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Um, like, subscribe, thumbs up, all of the things that you're supposed to do on videos and audios. Uh, podcasts and and remember that we are reading the comments we're replying we're extremely accessible and we're turning these things around pretty quickly so uh it's 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 a very good chance that if if you tell us something that you want to see in the next week we we can we can do it and and welcome yeah we want this to be a conversation yeah yeah I'm, i'm i'm having a great time with it it's such a serious topic but the way we're approaching it i think is is really fascinating and i'm learning so much so you know thank you Jeff, I'm, I'm really glad we we made this thing happen. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Well, looking forward to yeah, doing it again thank next you week. To our listeners, thank you to our viewers, thank you to our our sponsors to be named later, and and we'll see it. We'll see you on Thursday.